I think that, you know, because of capitalism, we have been taught to think that our worth comes from our production. Yeah. And when you enter into a phase that is a sustained period of inactivity and you can't produce either because you don't have access to whatever is required to make things mm-hmm. or your brain has ceased to allow you to do that. Yeah. This idea that has been beat into our heads as Americans since the second we were conceived. Yeah, we're not machines, right? (laughs) Right. Everything falls apart. And so it's hard to like sit back and go like, I am valuable. I matter. My worth does not have anything to do with what I put out Mm -hmm. or how much money I make for someone else or how much money I have or what I create even, you know, like breathing and sitting quietly in the moment is enough. This is Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, with Whitney Ann Jenkins. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner, authentic, creative, intuitive voice and what it's like to navigate following that voice in this life. This week I have with me Rue Snyder, who is a singer-songwriter based in Brooklyn, New York. He has released three albums out into the world, and another one is coming for us called Puzzle Pieces. He's very open about his struggle with alcohol and sobriety, and that is often reflected in his work as well as his passion for social justice. Rue has played all over the country going on tour, playing hundreds of shows a year, And his banter with live audiences is superbly entertaining, with his candid and honest observations. He is one of the most hardworking musicians I've ever encountered in my life, and I've seen this firsthand because I've played alongside him a couple times. One of Rue's reviews describes him as honest, raw, and critically current, and I couldn't agree with that more. So, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Rue Snyder. And you got pink hair. I have pink hair, yeah. Crazy. So, All right, so let's do it. We'll just jump into it. How's New York been? Well, you know, there was a lot of death at the uh, at the start of this, and yeah. it affects your consciousness in a way that you can't go back from. And it's interesting because so many people are experiencing that now or have experienced that at different points. It's frustrating to me that no one paid attention to what we were experiencing. It's made me more sensitive and compassionate and angry, but like um, trying to learn empathy better because like you can't erase trucks with bodies in them on the street and sirens all the time and like bear, you know, Brooklyn being empty when it's like beautiful and sunny out and people being terrified that they're going to die like all the time. So it was very, very scary. And that's changed my entire perception of how the city is. So to answer your question, like the city's weird and I can't really get a grip on it at the moment, but it's helped shape me as a person because I'm trying to be more empathetic to other people who didn't learn our lesson, which I wish people had just watched and been like, that's fucked up. I better prepare myself for the terrible things that are inevitably going to happen to me. And a lot of people most people in America didn't and now they're going through it Mm. so um, New York has become just like a 
it's not the same. It, it will be, you know, it will be robust again. But like, I mean, I spend all of my time in a bedroom, you know, literally in the space, this space, like almost all of my time, yeah. because it's just not, what are you going to do? Go out places and right. the people I that mean, are going out are very um, unsafe people. Yeah. California was pretty, I think it started in California before it, it reached New York. I think that's where it began for a minute like, yeah. in like San Francisco. So I understand <clears throat> that for sure. Uh, but your response to that, like goes to show like how much work that you've been doing on yourself. Right, right, right. And um, so you, the, just the time that I've known you, I feel like you've been working on defining and honing in who you are. And you're someone who's seems, seems incredibly grounded in, mm. in confident in your personality. Mm. your lifestyle and so i kind of want to go back to the beginning of you oh right <laughs> the beginning of you so yeah. when was the first time in your life that you realized that you had individual thoughts of your own that were not influenced by someone else i'm not certain that i do even now <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i ever did does anybody do people have those i mean i guess there are ideas that shape the world but Mm -hmm. um where do they come from and like right. who who lays claim to them you know exactly um so. i remember I, I remember having thoughts like being like three years old you know very young even younger but um i don't remember having like unique thoughts that i thought were mine i don't know when you write a song yeah where does that inspiration come from mm. would you what's behind the shaping of that well i've been writing songs for a really long time I've been writing songs like what I would call professionally for like nine years, eight or nine years. That shift from uh, fucking around, I don't know, can you bleep things out? Can I say that? Oh, Should I not say that? It's totally welcome. <laughs> from just, speak, like, speak from just like, from like fucking around to like actually like working, um, like, cr like learning the craft of songwriting uh, happened as a result of not wanting to die right um mm -hmm. it was like pre-therapy pre-medication um and having no other outlet except excessive use of alcohol and occasionally drugs mm -hmm. so songwriting for me was like a um it came from a place of brokenness and neediness and like um it was completely about saving myself so that's where it came from. And then the craft grew out of that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because after you do that long enough, you would start to think like, oh, what if I did this? And it wasn't because I feel like I'm going to die and I have to have a record of it to rouse myself. <laughs> right. Does that make sense? Uh, it does make sense. So you're, you're pretty open about your struggle with alcohol. Yeah. Did you begin writing songs before you went on the sobriety journey? Yes, many, many. I wrote songs when I was very young, but they're very bad because I grew up really Christian and that doesn't produce good art. <laughs> so I wrote, because whenever you have any kind of, um, whenever you're cr creating something in a coercive way, right? To like affect a response, it's, it's bad by definition, no matter what the perspective is. So my um, experience with Christianity was um, completely based on like needing to, I forget the word has escaped my brain when you try to like proselyte, it was like proselytizing, right? Proselytation, proselytation, is that a word? So anything that I created was about trying to affect uh, a response, trying to like 
send a message, right? And that isn't good art. So I have like, I wrote all kinds of songs when I was younger, very young, that were just, you know, garbage. So it wasn't until there was a more light, like literally life and death struggle in my body that my mind needed to like sort of had something to say. Yeah. Okay. So would you say that when you were writing songs in that, were they less authentic than they are now? When I was younger and like trying to make up melodies and stuff, they were completely inauthentic, 100%, because um, they weren't soulful or um, honest, right? There was no attempt to say anything real. I didn't, I hadn't experienced enough of the world. I didn't know what real was, you know what I'm saying? Once I began to write songs as an adult, in like 2011 maybe, I had, I was listening to a lot of singer-songwriters and I listened to Bob Dylan for, I don't know, 20 years at that point, things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, you listen to someone like Bob Dylan or like Neil Young or like Leonard Cohen or uh, those kind of people. And it's like, they're on this other level. So it's like, there's no, for me, there was never any hope of achieving that. You know, it's like looking at like a master craftsman and being like, well, that's nice. But like, mm-hmm. I just sort of fuck around because like I could never write songs like that, right? Whatever. And then I started listening to like younger singer songwriters and contemporary people at the time. And I realized, oh, people are like telling stories that are just like mine, but they're telling it from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And it resonates with me because it's like very specific to them, but I can relate to the emotions, even though my experience is different. So that empowered me to be like, oh, maybe my voice matters mm-hmm. because um nobody's doing anything different than what all these master craftsmen songwriters are doing, but they're trying to like be good. They're not trying to like copy that. They're just like being really authentic to use the word. And I guess the whole point of the podcast (laughs) and speak very specifically to their um, experience. And as a result, I felt empowered to speak to my experience. And that's when I started to do it and wrote a lot of bad songs, but then got better. Yeah. Yeah, what, what is a bad song to you? Something that, well, I mean, there's a, there's a level of craft that's rec- that you have to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, a, you know, there are just like words that you learn not to use. Um, there's a degree of being specific when, that when you start writing songs, you sort of don't always understand. So there's like, there's like technical things that you have to sort of put together. But then beyond that, I think it's like very subjective. I mean, I judge (laughs) my own work as far as like, what is a good song or a bad song. There are a lot of songs that I listen to. Like I'm thinking of like, what's the record? Like the Yield album by Pearl Jam. I think like all of the songs on it to me are like pretty much technically awful. Like they're, I I remember going through a period of being like, wow, these are terrible songs. Like they're like not well, well written songs to me, but some of them are so real and like connect with me so much, even though like, textbook wise it's like this isn't how you write a song but it's like at a certain point it doesn't matter right you know because it's real and authentic yeah and it connects with it connects with someone right yeah i think so i Um, think it has much to do with intention the intention of uh there are a lot of people that sit in rooms in los angeles and new york city in groups of two or three or four or five who craft songs craft songs that become enormous hits and make millions and millions of dollars that to me are like they're obviously well done. Like they're like they're very they, polished. Yeah, they understand all the ups and downs and how to put that together. But a lot of times it doesn't connect with me because it's like uh, it's inauthentic. But at the end of the day, I could write a few inauthentic songs if I could make you know enough money to eat. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can you talk a little bit about your transition from Christianity to 
whatever, wherever you are now. Mm. And um, what was that shift for you? Like what, uh, what was the turning point? I've like repressed so much of that. It's hard to think back on. It's like, I remember, I don't know if you've watched much Ingmar Bergman, he was the son mm-hmm. of a preacher and yeah. the first like whole half of his career was spent like searching for God, right? And like trying to sort out God. And then he makes a film called Winter Light mm-hmm. where he just decides like God doesn't exist. And then it really never comes up in his work again because he just sort of like, he's like, okay, I've, saw, I've put this to bed. And that's kind of how it is for me. I mean, like somewhere in my late 20s, which I had the experience that I would say the vast majority of people who are who grow up religious have much younger, that just, um, it was just really dumb. And there were a lot of factors that led to that. Religion asked me to live inauthentically and to like deny things that were obvious and to, you know, be unkind to people who were different than me, like gay people and treat women as less than equal and you know deny sexuality and like in modern day christianity like worship money and Mm -hmm. um all kinds of things that just stopped resonating with me it's hard to be specific about though because it was like a very long drawn out process and uh, it happened a long time ago because i'm getting old (laughs) (laughs) where did the alcohol come into that Mm. and when did that start to become a, a big problem for you oh for my first drink I'm one of the like, I'm not one of the, I abused alcohol, so I have an alcohol problem. I'm the, I'm the type of person who was always going to be an alcoholic, like always going to struggle with alcohol if I drank. Like I remember from the first time I ever had a sip of cider when I was like 19 in England, it was it, it was like I came home. It was just like, oh yes, this is the place to be. So for me, I've never not had an alcohol problem. So that, that played into my rejection of Christianity and just like opening up to a broader idea of the world Mm -hmm. when I realized that there was something deeply destructive to me that like one not everyone struggled with Mm -hmm. and two I did not choose or invoke or have anything to do with it's just something that existed in the world that when mixed with my physiognomy I'm not sure what the word physiology physiology um, became incredibly toxic and that was not something that I had any choice about so when faced with ideologies or philosophies that prescribe or or uh, espouse that like um you know you have control over everything and you make choices and like um you're responsible for whatever happens you know um to a degree that's somewhat bullshit because like um, I have control now over whether I choose to drink alcohol or not, mm-hmm. but I do not have any control over what alcohol does to my body. And when I was 19 years old, I didn't know any of that. So there's this um, great amount of shame that comes with doing something very normal that affects you in a very not normal way. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time to work through that shame, but then you realize like, oh, I don't have anything to do with this. This is, this is just nature. Yeah. And um, a lot of people are like, you need to stop, like you need to get help. And it's like, well, that doesn't resonate with me. There's something bigger going on than just like, I'm a bad person. So that opened me up to a lot of things and that helped me to like reject Christianity in a way because it's like a lot of people move toward the light, you know, like addiction leads them to a more rich spiritual life. To me, it was like, I reject all of this nonsense and these people who think that like, I have some choice in the matter 
this is speaking specifically to like religious churches mm -hmm. and institutions, not like Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, which right. um, is a different thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How, as an artist, you wrote songs before you became sober. So how how is that transition? What did you notice, like a big freedom in expressing yourself? Well, it's a richer palette, I think, because it's yeah. like um, I didn't notice. I guess I was really, really sad. I didn't understand what depression was, and I don't know if I experienced depression like before I turned like 40 because I was so inebriated, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't understand what it was. But the work that I tried to do with music was very, very sad and very dark. And when I look back on the stuff that I did when I was still drinking all the time, it was like, it's just so sad. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the, the, the songs that I thought were like celebratory or, um, you know, like party songs, like, no, they're just like, oh, it's so sad. That dude's fucked up. That's a, that's, ooh. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether it's like upbeat or not. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of freedom in letting that go. And now I have the experience of like years and years of constant inebriation and now like five and a half years of sobriety. And I can tell a lot of different stories, but I'm uh, a better songwriter and I can be more intentional about it. And it do, it's not just like word vomit, you know, and I'm not writing songs about alcohol in order to like save myself. I can like, I can craft things that are more interesting and at least when I say more interesting, I'm, all, I'm only ever speaking about myself because I have no idea well, yeah. you know, if anybody else finds it interesting, but to me, it's more interesting. So not being drunk opens up the door to a much larger palette of like musical and lyrical colors to me because I can write things about being drunk, but I can also write things about being sober and I have a different perspective that I couldn't have had when I was drinking. Does that make sense? It does make sense. You all, you've also done a lot of touring on your own. Tremendous um, amount. I was doing like 150 shows a year, over 100 shows a year for three or four years. Yeah. What, what is it that was driving you to do that? I know a lot of musicians and songwriters who are much better than me and probably always will be who don't do shit. I saw that very early on when I started playing at open mics and stuff in New York. And I was like, and I talked to people. One guy told me, like, I don't even think he knew what he was talking about, but he was like, if you want to be successful, you need to be playing like 100 shows a year, like outside of New York, which he didn't do. And I was like, well, I'm going to do that mm -hmm. because, like, I don't want to just fuck around and play these goddamn open mics. It's like, that's no fun. Playing open mics sucks. And you can only play so many shows in New York. I mean, like, there's a million things going on. It's, incredibly difficult to get people to come sometimes you play a show for like one person and it's disheartening right so i was like well if i play a show for one person in cleveland <laughs> it's okay because nobody knows me in cleveland so i just started doing it and i was like i might never be as good as some of the people that i know but i'm going to work harder and i'm going to accomplish more not like in a like fuck you kind of way but just in a like okay i've seen what these people have done and what they haven't done and I can't be that good of a guitar player or I'm not willing to maybe put in the time to be that good, but I can go get experience and entertain people and like tell more stories and just get better and make a living at it. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to be a guy who was like an administrative assistant and a songwriter, you know, right. Um, which I've since then, as I've like opened up to like the dangers of 
capitalism and changed my mind about jobs and life. Like now I see no disrespect in that at all. But at the time I was like, I don't want to work another job. So I just stayed on the road and played all the time. You were staying true to your, your inner self. Yes, exactly. And you toured in, in the, some interesting places as far as maybe your songs would not be as resonant there or um, conflicting ideas politically. Yeah, I mean, what I've learned is if you're a white dude, you can say pretty much anything and no one gives a shit. It's fine. So I could go and sing anti-Donald Trump songs or anti-police songs in the Deep South and no one gave me any shit about it. And I was like, oh, look at how open-minded and like cool these people are. Look, the world is more peaceful and like we're less divided than I thought. And it's like, no, I'm just a white guy. And so like they see me and they don't really, it doesn't, that's all that happened. So I learned a lot about racism by the fact that I didn't experience any and that people weren't opposed to the like kind of confrontational lyrics that I have in some of my songs. People just, it just bounced right off them. And I realized, oh, people that don't look like me have the same experience, but the opposite. You know, because people just see them and respond the same way they saw me and like, let me, you know, call them racist, <laughs> you know, and they were like, whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Definitely. I think so. So with your rejection of religion, mm -hmm. what is it that you, do you believe in anything? What, what are your beliefs as far as? Oh, I don't believe in God at all. I think that's silly. Um, I think that religion is dangerous. And I think that it would be valuable for us to focus on humanity and not some sky god. But there are occasionally people that I meet, occasionally, who have a religious practice, who are also doing good and aren't coercive. And for me, the dangerous part of religion has always been the coercion and the like, you must believe or. If someone's religion leads them to literally feed the poor and not feed the poor and then make them listen to some bullshit message about Jesus, great. Because I think we should feed the poor and I think that we should fight for social justice and I think that we should oppose capitalism. And if someone's religion causes them to believe the same thing, then we're fighting for the same stuff and it doesn't matter um, that we think differently about God. But almost all of the time, I find that that's not the case. <laughs> and people who have a belief system think that I should have that belief system too about something that is intangible and ridiculous to me. And instead of seeing our common ground and how we can like do good in the world, they really just want to save me. And I think that's fucked. Do you have people who inspire you? I mean, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, people like that. Anyone who's like fighting for goodness and willing to admit when they're wrong and constantly trying to grow. I think Glennon Doyle is really inspiring. You know, people like that. Not a lot of creative people at the moment, but like anyone that's trying to make a difference in the world, like, you know, feed the poor. I'm on, I'm on board. What is it about New York that resonates with you so much? Because you seem to have a deep love for it. Well, um, I like the anonymity, as I say, with pink hair. I like the the lack of bullshit, you know what I mean? The like zero tolerance for bullshit, the like no fake niceties. I understand, you know, cause I've spent a lot of time all over the country. I think I've played in 37 states and I've been to 47 states. So I've seen how other people live and I understand why this sort of rehearsed social interactions that take place like in the South or in the Midwest, like, hey, how are you? How's your da -da 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 -da? I get it. 
and I understand why that appeals to people. It does not appeal to me. When I go to buy gum, I just want my fucking gum. You know what I mean? And like, I don't want to have a two minute conversation with someone about their day because they don't care about my day and I don't care about their day. And it's the same other places. It's just, there are these rehearsed ways of going about things to be polite. New York, there's none of that. It's like, I go into the bodega, I put my $2 on the table, I pick up the gum and I walk out. I love that. Yeah. No bullshit. That does not just say that people in New York aren't nice or friendly. I have millions of examples of shitty things happening and people just being there to pick you, literally pick you up off the ground if you get knocked over or whatever. Help you out if you don't know where you're going. But I like the anonymity and I like the absence of bullshit. And I like the fact that like it's very tolerant here. Um, there aren't a lot of people that think like me in New York. I'm super left wing. I don't believe in God. Like a lot of people here are like, you know, brunch liberals who like follow politics as much as they have to, to like be able to go to brunch. I think that that's awful, but New York is very, very diverse. And there are lots of people from different cultures and there's much for me to learn mm -hmm. um, by being around people that are different from me all the time. So I like that about this place. It's hard to find that many places. I like the fact that in New York, you don't have to drive when there's not a pandemic, you know what I mean? Like, and you can walk around. Right. The subway system is really good. I like Los Angeles. Um, I do like the compact, how compact New York is and the fact that I can get around without a car if I want to. And that most interactions that happen are in public spaces. So no one has to be in my fucking space, which I goddamn hate, which is different from Los Angeles. Of course, spaces are much bigger because I guess many of the things that New York has to offer also exist there. Mm -hmm. But the, um, I do like the, the freedom to walk in New York. I love walking. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And the four seasons, you know what I mean? All four seasons here. Yeah. That's, that's a thing that you guys have, four seasons, for sure. Mm -hmm. You sure do. <laughs> sure do. A little bit of lack of sun sometimes, but. I don't mind. Good. I mean, like, I like rainy days, you know, because I like to watch movies and stay in and not wear pants so it's hard to do that on a sunny day i was in la for two months in like southern california last fall in 2019 and it's just like i'd be like man it's gonna be really hard for me to not go outside today and watch these six movies but i'm gonna do it i'm gonna feel bad about it because it's like 90 and sunny are you working on any new material right now being locked in your yeah you know i i couldn't pick up my guitar for like six months or something it was very it was like once i realized it was actual depression there was a lot of freedom and then I started to be able to practice again. I thought something was wrong. It's interesting when you're in the midst of like a crisis and you don't, and it's so obvious, but then you just can't get your head wrapped around it. This has helped me to tr at least practice tolerance and acceptance of other people because sometimes I see people that are s so upset and so in the heart of something awful when there's like an exit right beside them. And it's like, just open, the, just open that door. Just, it's right there. Yeah. But I realized through this pandemic, like, stop that, stop, stop pointing to the door and let people find it. Because like, I couldn't pick up my guitar and I didn't understand why. And I thought there's something wrong with me in the midst of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, I was just depressed, real fucking depressed. Yeah. You're not alone in that. Um, I work as a, a volunteer crisis counselor uh -huh. and um, I've had, I've noticed during the past couple of months, huge increase in people just being depressed and not understanding the purpose of their life. And it's pretty uh it's frightening in a lot of ways yeah i mean i think that you know because of capitalism we have been taught to think that our worth comes from our production yeah and when you enter into a phase that is a sustained period of inactivity and you can't produce 
either because you don't have access to whatever is required to make things mm -hmm. or your brain has ceased to allow you to do that. Yeah. This idea that has been beat into our heads as Americans since the second we were conceived. Yeah, we're not machines, right? Right. <laughs> Everything falls apart. And so it's hard to like sit back and go like, I am valuable, I matter. My worth does not have anything to do with what I put out mm -hmm. or how much money I make for someone else or how much money I have or what I create even, you know, like breathing and sitting quietly in the moment is enough yeah. that like life is not about purchasing things or about making things. So that's very hard. And so many people have not been able to cross that boundary and be like, oh, this is capitalism and also the patriarchy, which are very tied together, telling me that I have to be this way or I have no value. Yeah. Um, I just feel lucky enough largely because of mistakes I made for 21 years drinking alcohol that I was able to see through some of that a, a little bit earlier on. And I'm grateful. You know? Yeah, you, you have an awareness of that. But, but many people are very afraid to sit with themselves mm. and have that awareness. So yes. Kudos to you. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, you know, the journey that we're all on, it's like um, I've done a lot of work and I take, I'm, I'm proud of the work I've done in self-awareness, you know, but... Yeah. But it's still like, it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's just like, it's available to all of us, you know, like right. growing. I, I, I feel bad that some people have kind of intentionally chosen not to grow. That's another thing I've seen. I mean, you look at like all of these really awful politicians, really all of them. Um, I, 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 find that, I find that people who consider themselves Democrats or who are something that isn't like Republican really tend to criticize Republicans as if they're like the evil in the world. And it's like politicians right. are following a script written by corporations. And um, it's important that we not buy into this two-sided binary idea that like these people are good and these people are bad because none of them care about us as the working class. Yeah, they're all the same. They're all the same. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that uh, watching this pandemic, hopefully more people open up to this. You start to see there are a lot of people who have a vested interest in, you know, oppressing people who are poor, but also just old men who've chosen not to grow. I mean, as a metaphor, I feel like Congress is like, the Senate especially is like a metaphor for an entire generation of uh, mostly men, uh, although millions of women as well, who've decided at a certain point that the way they see the world is correct. Yeah. And we need to like go back to a, a less, a different time or not be open to new ideas. So as I get older, rather than fight against that or try to change that, because eventually those people are going to die. And I try as I get older to never, ever, ever be that person. And every time that something triggers me because it's unfamiliar or because it's new or because it upsets me, to like sit with it and allow myself to consider the possibility that something that I think or maybe believed for my entire life is not the best way to think and constantly be willing to change. Yeah. Um, I want to be 80 years old and discovering new things and be like, well, I believed this for 70 years and I was just wrong. That's yeah. so exciting to think about. People yeah. are really comfortable in their bubbles. Mm. 
And I feel like I, I used to be super passionate about like wanting to pop their bubble and be like, pay attention. But I, I feel like I'm, I don't do that anymore as much because it, it doesn't do anything in doesn't, a, a good way. That's, that's the downside of like social media. People think that you can pop people's bubbles or that like you can like win an argument. And like, I don't want to like, I want the world to be better and kinder. Right, and, and I want it, people to yeah. be fed and healthy. I think, and, I think, yeah, I think the best the way that we can maybe do that is just to be examples ourselves. Yeah, it can have a ripple effect. I mean, like, fight for things. Like, you have to fight for political causes because, like, that's how actual gains are made. But like, arguing with someone who doesn't believe Medicare for all is the best answer. I'm not an expert on Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of ideas about it. I know a lot about it. But like, fighting with someone about it. I just want them to be healthy. <laughs> I mean, like, I just don't want them to have to pay for medicine. At the end of the day, you know, fight for policy, but also be, yeah, be kind to people. Be kind to people for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I usually wrap up the conversation with this question. Mm-hmm. If your inner voice had a billboard, what mm. would it say to the world? Watch more horror. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think it would say, um, love yourself above everything Mm. because like, it's my fervent belief and what I've learned through lots and lots of therapy is our ability to accept and give out love is directly proportional to the amount of love we have for ourselves. So if love was on a scale of one to 10, and your self-love is at a two, no matter how genuine and authentic and real someone else's love for you is coming in at you at a 10, you're only going to be able to receive it at a two because that's how you see yourself. And that's the maximum amount of love that you can give or receive. So the more that we love ourselves, the more we can love other people and receive love from them. So I think that that's the secret to everything. And so much of the world is geared to telling everybody how bad they are and how they shouldn't love themselves. And I fucking hate that. Because like, if you don't love yourself, you literally are incapable of doing any good for anyone. It's a reflection of every relationship you have with everything in your life is your relationship with yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Literally everything. If only people, if more people could understand that. It feels like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how anybody, when I meet people who have started to attach to good ideas and then they like, are like, yeah, but I'm, I'm garbage or like, you know, it's just like, uh, stop every, it's like, it's like if you have credit card debt and you're saving money, it's mm-hmm. like, stop saving money, pay off your credit card debt immediately and then save money. Like you have to do this, then you have to do this. Mm-hmm. Like if you're investigating, uh, trying to be like a, uh, fighting for social justice, but you hate yourself, right. you have to stop hating yourself first because that work that you're doing is not going to affect any change you have to love yourself first yeah yes like what you that. said <laughs> all right so if people would like to find you and your work and your music where can they go well my name is rue snyder that's r-u-e-s-n-i-d-e-r i'm on all the streaming services i've got lots of songs the thing is i talk about this stuff most of my music is just like brokenhearted love songs that are kind of pretty <laughs> so it's like valid. it's very valid it's so very yeah but valid. I, but i but i mean i feel like you know I, i'm not great at the marketing because i like to talk about we didn't talk about horror movies but i like to talk about horror movies and i like to talk about social justice and socialism 
and my music has very little to do with any of that. But um, musicbyru.com is the place. And then like, you know, all of the services, Tidal and Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon Music and all of the stuff, I'm everywhere. And I have a record coming out next year called Puzzle Pieces, or this year called Puzzle Pieces, which is a fine group of tunes. Mm -hmm. And I have an EP coming out that's a live thing. Um, I think the first or second week of February called Pete's Candy Store Part Two. I put out one EP and it was like new songs. And then this one is like, songs I've uh, had for years but they're just like me and my guitar yeah yeah so actually let's go back to the horror movies what is that all about mm. well there's the the authentic thing right right and uh there's like a nostalgia to it but there's also horror covers like a lot of emotions and a lot of ideas and there's a lot to it that speaks to the time period that movies were created in the socioeconomic, the political things going on in the world. Like if you look at the horror movies that were being made, you know, when we were in Iraq during Bush, you know, we have all these torture porn movies. Mm -hmm. And it's like the United States was actually torturing people. So it's mm -hmm. like um, horror movies tend to reflect time periods. So they're kind of historical in a way. And um, there's a lot to chew on there. And also it's just fun, you know, growing up super religious and having very strict rules that really I imposed upon myself about like what was acceptable and what you can put in your brain and what you can't put in your brain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, watching like monsters eat people as an adult is like, <laughs> it's very satisfying. And it's like nice to think that like, uh, you know, movies aren't real and you're allowed to feel things through cinema and sort of get stuff out that you wouldn't in real life, you know? That like movies don't make people violent. It's okay to watch that and it's, it's just fun. Maybe a good way to purge emotions that are stuck inside of you, maybe. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, <laughs> I think so. And it's like, you know, special effects are cool. Horror movies and science fiction movies, like, you just can't beat it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for asking me to come on. It's really cool. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time... Stay tuned in to you.